On October 4, 2017, a special forces team, Team 3212, was operating in Niger with Nigerian forces doing counter-ISIS operations when elements of ISIS ambushed them and killed several members of the team, including support personnel. And then, uh, to add insult to injury, many of those team members had their names dragged through the mud. Low-level officers were kind of thrown under the bus. And there seemed to be an awful lot of murkiness and confusion about what the team was doing, why it was there, how the exact ambush went down, and how the uh, firefight occurred. Well, it's taken years to unpack all this. James Gordon Meek is an Emmy, SPJ, and Overseas Press Club award-winning national security investigative reporter for ABC News, and he has been investigating this for years, interviewing hundreds of people to flesh out and develop the picture to the point he has now produced a 90-minute documentary feature, 3212 Unredacted which is coming to Hulu on November 11th, on Veterans Day. Again, the documentary is 3212 Unredacted. So when uh, the team over there approached us about uh, talking about this episode, I was incredibly interested. Um, I was in Africa at a different place at that time. Um, So I was aware of this incident. It was a weird year in Africa. A lot of weird things happened that year. And this certainly, uh, as I say to James, this was probably um, close to the top, if not the uh, weirdest thing that happened. And he really, uh, we had a great conversation. I really appreciated uh, just being able to assess how severe of a situation this was as an investigative um, uh, task. How difficult was it for him to get the information? Um, and, And obviously spending years diving into this, there was a lot of bureaucracy to sift through. There was a lot of secrecy to sift through. And I asked him about why that was important. So uh, I really appreciated his answers. Very forthright, straightforward guy, um, humble, articulate, uh, enjoyed the conversation. But I think this story is even more relevant now um, because of the withdrawal from Afghanistan. Uh, We had the drone attack, obviously, in Kabul that happened after the bombing at the Abbey Gate. There's been a lot of questions about general officer accountability about oversight, about checks and balances inside the military. So this is an incredibly timely documentary, and it captures this little flashpoint that is significant in the annals of special operations in Africa, let's be clear. But it also has a lot of relevance to uh, military culture and how the military is regulated, maintained, uh, checked um, by its civilian um, bosses. So anyway, very interesting conversation. I think you guys are going to enjoy the heck out of it. Obviously, this is an exceptionally um, rare and unique episode for the Weekly Havoc. But then this incident was an exceptionally rare and unique incident in the history of our military. So it works. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer, and this is the Weekly Havoc. Welcome to this week's episode of The Weekly Havoc, where we engage in a roundtable discussion with the staff, writers, and friends 
of Havoc Journal. Try to make a little order out of chaos, except, of course, today. And I know I do a caveat a lot, but today we have a very special episode, which will not be a roundtable. It'll be just one guest, James Gordon Meek, who you all probably know because he has been in the community for an awfully long time. He is an Emmy, SPJ, and Overseas Press Club award-winning national security investigative reporter for ABC News. Previously, he was a senior investigator and senior counterterrorism advisor to two chairmen of the U.S. House Committee on Homeland Security. He's been a senior fellow at George Washington University's Center for Cyber and Homeland Security. He's spoken at Georgetown, Little Creek, Virginia, Marine Corps University, West Point, and the FBI Academy. He partnered with Lieutenant Colonel Scott Mann to create Task Force Pineapple, which is an ad hoc group of veterans who evacuated hundreds of Afghans after the fall of Kabul this year. And at ABC News, he handles competitive breaking news reporting and long-term investigative projects for broadcast and online. James reported and co-produced the ABC documentary feature 3212 Unredacted, which is coming to Hulu on November 11th, 2021. It is about the ambush of a Green Beret team in Africa and the Pentagon cover-up. James, thanks a million for being here. And brother, thanks for having me on here, Chris. It's uh, it's really cool to join you and talk about this film, 3212 Unredacted, that uh, I was able to do the investigation for and co-produce with my great colleagues, Brian Epstein and Andrew Fredericks, and our, our bosses, executive producers, uh, Cindy Galley and Chris Blasto for ABC News. Well, I can't wait to see it. Um, I've got a ton of questions that I'm going to try to steer so you don't have to give out any spoilers. Um, but it, this is a particular interest to me. I was actually in Africa in a different country when that all went down. That was a weird year in Africa. A lot of weird things yeah. happened that year. And you Welcome certainly home. are. Well, thanks. I mean, this was obviously a couple of years ago, but, um, you know, this was uh, you, you're capturing one of the most insidious and crazy stories to come out of Africa that year. So first, let me let me take a 30,000 foot view of this. You've done a ton of investigative work over the years. How does this rate? How does this stack up with your previous investigations? Is it more frustrating, less frustrating? Where does it stand? I mean, that's a great question. Um, thank you for asking that. I mean, it, it, it was a tough one. I mean, in a way, it was a good thing that, you know, because of the pandemic and, and other issues, it took a long time to get to this point where we're releasing, you know, mm-hmm. what is now a feature documentary, a 90-minute a journey through the lives of four American families who um, who suffered a terrible loss, the loss of their their loved ones in battle, and then an additional tragedy, which was the the huge layer of doubt cast over what actually happened. Yeah. yeah. Um, so where does it? I mean, rate in terms of other things. I think when you dive into the world of special operations, which are largely classified secret, um, it's always going to be tough. Um, I think when you have, in my case, I was approached initially three and a half years ago by two of the families of the four guys who were killed. Mm-hmm. The four guys killed were uh, Sergeant First Class Jeremiah Johnson, Staff Sergeant Dustin Wright, Staff Sergeant Brian Black, and Sergeant David Johnson. And uh, uh, the parents of Jeremiah Johnson and the brother of Dustin Wright um, came to me and said, you know, we're comparing notes on this story. This is in early 2018 and things are just not adding up with what we're being told. And with, uh, in the case of Jeremiah's parents, it was his mother and stepdad. His stepdad's a retired FBI special agent. In the case of Dustin Wright, his brother, Will, 
had, was a combat veteran of Afghanistan, an infantry uh, NCO, a staff sergeant in the army. And, you know, so that actually carried quite a lot of weight with me when they were saying that the story they heard did not line up. But it also carried weight because going back to the incident when it happened itself in October 4th, 2017, reporters who were covering it, and there were a bunch of us at ABC who were very experienced covering the military and yeah. war, and we understand fog of war and all that. Yeah. Gosh, we couldn't get two sources to tell the same, same story. Couldn't get people to like tell us, well, was it 10 guys on the ground or was it 50 guys on the ground? We heard both. So it turned out we weren't the only ones. Um, at the White House, at the National Security Council in the Trump White House, yeah. they couldn't get straight answers out of Africa. The combatant command that oversees all Africa operations, yeah. you know, is U.S. United States Africa Command, which is based in Stuttgart, Germany. Uh, but at the Pentagon, senior officials like the top civilian overseeing all special operations, the assistant secretary of defense for special operations was a guy named Mark Mitchell. He couldn't get details out of Africa of what happened for weeks. And he was being you know, bombarded with members of Congress sure. who wanted to know. And Mark Mitchell wasn't just like some guy off the street. Right. He himself was a retired Green Beret commander of 5th Special Forces Group who received the Distinguished Service Cross in Afghanistan after 9-11. So these were all people who had real experience and they were like, what is going on here? So it wasn't just reporters. And, and I learned that as I went along. Yeah. So... <sighs> There's so many questions that that raises, but let me start with this. For the families um, that came to you, is it common that you get approached because of your relationship with the special operations community when something goes south? Are you used to getting a lot of requests or was it rare that they even reached out to you in the first place? I don't get, I'm not inundated with requests um, because I think a lot of people, I don't think this kind of thing is uncommon where the truth gets bent. Um, I'm not going to say this is typical of the military either. I mean, I think people by and large are truth tellers and I have met some just great, great commanders and service members in my career. But uh, in this case, it was really interesting because I had spent about four years investigating the friendly fire death and cover up Mm -hmm. of private first class, David H. Sherrod II, who I knew because his dad was my high school English teacher when Mm -hmm. I was a freshman and junior. Uh, at Langley High School next to CIA. And his dad, Dave Sherrod Sr., um, he and I had had together spent years finding out what really happened to his son, who was shot by his own lieutenant and left to die when the lieutenant got on a helicopter and left the battleground in Iraq. His son was in the 101st Airborne Division. He is now buried at Section 60 at Arlington National Cemetery. So Dave and his wife, Vicki, were down at a TAPS retreat. And if you're not familiar, folks aren't familiar with TAPS, it's a great organization that supports um, uh, families of service members who have died, killed in action in other ways. And so they met this couple. They told their story around a campfire as they were sitting around with other Gold Star family members about you know, finding out what happened to their son, Dave. And this couple walked up to them and said, our son was just killed in Niger a few months ago. And something about the story is we don't think we're being told the truth. And your, your story is incredible. What do you think we should do? And wow. Dave said, he was like, um, you should talk to my former student, James, wow. at ABC News. And he dialed me up and he said, hey, uh, do you know about this thing in Niger? And I was like, yeah, man, hanky story. Just right. Crazy. Right. Well, these folks need to talk to you. So it's weird. Um, 
I think there's a natural tension, as you kind of hinted at, when you get into the special operations community and you're trying to essentially be the inspector general writ large, right? You're not going, you're not the formal inspector general, but you are the ultimate public release of information. And there's that inherent tension between operational secrecy and operational security and um, malevolence and negligence and cover-ups um, yeah. and, and trying to find out where to thread that needle and, and you know, what's weighing more heavily in a situation. In this situation, was it unique in your experience that you were finding, hey, people, there's an extreme level of negligence or an extreme level of ignorance or an extreme level of um, cover up? I mean, in your experience, because you have a lot of things that you can compare and contrast with, did this seem exceptional to you? Or was this like, oh, yeah, I'm going down this path again, and this is what happens? There's a lot of you know, fog of war and a lot of confusion. If you accept what senior and experienced commanders, such as General Don Bulldock, who's in the film, Mark Mitchell, who is the top civilian at the Pentagon overseeing special operations, and others say, this was an effort to essentially insulate United States Africa Command and Stuttgart, Germany, the command, from an incident that they found to be embarrassing. You know, from their standpoint, the team lost a gunfight. So, I mean, is that unusual? to try for for senior leaders um, who have to kind of maneuver politically to end up with stars on their shoulders to um, try to distance themselves from something that is politically or otherwise they regard embarrassing. I would say it's not that unusual. Um, I think what is unusual, what is actually shocking is that you would have these leaders in this case, general Thomas Waldhauser, then AFRICOM commander, go to the podium and yeah. essentially commandeer the prestige of the podium at the Pentagon, as he did at his press conference in May 2018, and make absolutely outlandish statements that were, and as a result of our investigation and the family's own digging, clearly false. The team did not go rogue, as he accused them of doing. The team was not incompetent and untrained and unskilled compared to other operators across the continent of Africa which he said. And by the way, the team was not looking for intelligence at the campsite of the terrorists they were supposedly trying to kill on an American hostage named Jeffrey Woodkey, who had been kidnapped a year earlier, is a humanitarian aid worker. Think about that just for a moment. They're really out there trying to kill without authorization from their senior commanders, the, like the number three ISIS commander in Africa. Right. Why the hell would they object to searching his campsite? which is something that was hidden from the families. Captain Mike Perzini, the detachment commander, objected to that mission in the field from the ground because he was lightly armed. He had no medevac capability if they got into a gunfight. He had no backup that was would come within you know 10 hours from any American forces. Uh, and, and as he had a partner force that was completely spent after being awake for 24 hours on this patrol. Why would this guy object yeah. if... He didn't have a good reason. And if he was gung-ho to go smoke this, this terrorist right. commander the whole time. Right. But also, why weren't the families told that he objected? Why was this guy thrown under the bus by the command and, and their briefings to the families and to the public? You know? So we're kind of getting, I don't want to do any spoilers that you're not willing to reveal, but it seems like Waldhauser kind of was the 
single point of failure in this operation, at least as far as the cover-up goes. Is that a fair assessment for me to make? I think Harry S. Truman had a placard on his desk in the Oval Office that said, the buck stops here. So this is a question that Dustin Wright's mother asks in the film, you know, because people have asked me a lot in press interviews and otherwise, like, why does this matter to anybody other than those four families? Sure. And this is her answer. She said, uh, in order, if we want to have a strong military to protect all of us, to protect our nation, then we have to have accountability. Leaders can't just hold their subordinates accountable, which is what happened here, because everybody from the company commander, Major Alan Van Son, to Captain Perizzini and on down, and their intelligence warrant officer, and some of the NCOs were all reprimanded, all drummed out of the army by their retiring or leaving, except for Perizzini, who sort of survived after two reprimands. Um, not, I mean, not reputationally, arguably, because it's right. the director of the press, but, you know, um, you have to have leaders who hold themselves accountable. And the battalion commander who overruled Perizzini's objections to searching that campsite and continuing the operation, Lieutenant Colonel David Painter, and his boss, the third special force commander, Colonel Brad Moses, uh, Painter never spoke to me and a dozen attempts to get a hold of him. Uh, Moses did after I attempted for two years of requests of talking to them, um, they just disappeared. They didn't hold themselves accountable. They were not punished by through any of the investigations. They were actually promoted. It was the U.S. Senate who held them accountable by not um, confirming their promotions. So they disappeared. The families didn't even recognize photos when I said, here's a picture of David Painter, Lieutenant Colonel Painter. Wow. They're like, who's that? Wow. I mean, only one family member I know has ever met him. So they never got a condolence call. He wasn't at their funerals. These guys were advised by lawyers and others to hide. And, and Colonel Moses, I think, feels deep regret, probably very sincerely. Um, and my interview with him finally last year, he said Colonel Painter didn't tell him that, for example, there was you know a CIA element with the team. He didn't tell him that Captain Perizzini, most importantly, had raised objections. He said, I would have called him on a sat phone if I'd known this. But, you know, Moses is the buck stopped with him. And of course, yeah. as you point out, the buck stops with those commanders at AFRICOM. But let me just make one last point about that. Sure. The original investigation was initiated by Special Operations Command Africa just to find out what happened. Sure. And within a week, General Waldhauser, the four-star combatant commander, took it away from SOC Africa and the colonel who was doing it and appointed his own chief of staff, Major General Roger Cloutier, to lead the investigation. Now, you and I think many of your listeners know that you can't investigate. If you're a two-star general, you can't investigate a three- or four-star general. You can only investigate people below your rank, right? So right there, you had a clear conflict of interest and a glaring red flag that the command itself would never be examined and the reason for why were these guys out there without medevac, without any QRF or backup, if they got into the gunfight they got into, um, why was there, you know, why were they sent on a mission when they were so lightly armed? They only had two machine guns, two M240s. Yeah. So it seems like there were two sets of failures, right? There was one that was an operational failure um, that the team tried to complain about and was overruled. And then there is a, obviously the cover-up. Um, and and the lack of accountability. Let's start with the lack of accountability. Based off your investigation, do you believe it's a systemic problem of accountability, or was this a personality-based one where you just had the wrong people in the wrong positions to hold themselves or hold others accountable? 
to be clear, I'm not a military veteran. I've covered the military. It's the family business. <laughs> my grandfather was a general officer. My dad was a Navy corpsman with uh, 1-7 Marines in Korea, um, going back to the Revolutionary War. Uh, but from my standpoint, I mean, people like Tom Ricks have written books about the culture of general officers. You know, they travel on Gulf streams, um, particularly the combatant commanders. Um, when I finally got to General Waldhauser a couple of years ago, it was in the hallway of the House, right outside the House Armed Services Committee, where he testified. He had a, a personal security detail, which yeah. he used to try to keep me and our camera crew away from him. That's not so, a that's a violation of rules up there, but that's sort of indicative of the the lack of accountability, I think, in the general officer culture. But General Don Bulldog makes the point in the film. It's you know these guys. He wasn't a member of the club, and a lot of the people who weren't a member of the club ended up getting uh, cashiered. Whereas the members of the club, like Colonel Painter and Colonel Moses, advanced on in their careers and were not held accountable. And I think you know one need only look at a lot of cases over the years. And I think you come to the conclusion that there is not accountability. Waldhauser retired. Uh, general wow. Cloutier is now a three-star general. Yeah. Um, you know, the commander of SOC Africa was reprimanded and he didn't even know about the mission. <laughs> and, he, you know, the, which begs the question, why is the two-star commands it reprimanded, but not the two guys who are actually overseeing and, and issuing the orders right. on the mission? So uh, this is going to be an unfair question. Let me preface it with that. Um, because I mean, you're not a military veteran and you're not, you know, you're not the president. You, you can't go around. You can't make, you know, um, recommendations or, or you don't have the weight to, to enforce uh, the guidance that you would otherwise give. But you have been experienced and you have looked into this a lot. What's the fix? Because that's the, kind of the devil's advocate position. OK, well, I got it. General officers are a, a boys club or at least they close ranks about around their own very quickly. There's a lack of accountability. But what do you do? How do you get around that? Somebody's got to be a general officer. So do you screen for a certain personality trait? Do you uh, eliminate the general officer ranks and have checks and balances? Or or what's what's the fix to the best of your ability to say? And again, it's an unfair question. Well, I'm going to be kind of narrow in my answer. I mean, first of all, the United States Senate, uh, the Senate Officers Committee and the full Senate um, confirm nominees when they advance in rank within the, the service branches. So there's a, there's a check there. And that, again, that did happen with Colonel Moses, who did not advance to general officer, and Lieutenant Colonel Painter, who did not advance to 06, full colonel. But that wasn't real accountability. You know, I think the fix is tell the damn truth. And, it, and from what I've heard uh, anecdotally, um, and what I believe having interviewed um, several of the people on the AFRICOM investigation team at length, as well as you know, people up and down the chain of command, left and right, involved in this. Um, you know, the fix was in from the beginning. There was an effort, almost from the beginning, to pin the blame on low-level guys. Uh, they made it real clear to the Pentagon press corps we're not looking at senior leadership, uh, and they didn't. So that's part of it. But for these families, I think what they want. Never mind what Meek wants. Sure. The families of the fallen soldiers would like to see the Pentagon correct the record. My hope is Secretary Lloyd Austin and his staff actually watch this documentary feature, 3212 Unredacted, which will be out on Hulu on Veterans Day. And 
see it as a reason and a roadmap for a review. He not long ago ordered a review of the Manda Bay attack in Kenya uh, that AFRICOM had done an investigation of, you know, and I think not much is known about that or why he ordered it, but um, I think, you know, that's that's something that families would like here. And then part of that should be reviewing the reprimands. Most of them should be rescinded. Major Alan Van Son, who was at Fort Bragg, his wife was having their second daughter born. He got scapegoated and drummed out of the army. One of the, what most people I've talked to regard as one of the finest officers in the army got scapegoated. And he wasn't even in Africa when this happened to him, one of his teams. And, and everybody looks at that and just says, scratches their head. Yeah. Why Alan Van Son? Why Major Van Son? And I think that's a really good question. But the Valor Awards also, many of them were downgraded. Dustin Wright was recommended for the Medal of Honor. I have the records. He was downgraded twice to the posthumous Silver Star, which is, you know, the third highest Valor Award. It's sure. important. But I think new information has come to light recently, which casts even greater doubt on that downgrade. And that Dustin Wright and Jeremiah Johnson um, and Brian Black uh, also, but particularly those two, I think their families believe, and a lot of other people in the military believe, based on some new revelations, that they should be that their valor awards should be upgraded. These men fought to the yeah. last round. They fought when they had bullets ripping through their flesh. They fought through agonizing pain until the last breath exited their lungs, and. It was extraordinary valor, and they fought for each other. Jeremiah and Dustin stayed with Brian Black after he was shot and exposed themselves. Instead of running away from the enemy immediately, they tried to stay with their comrade. Yeah, they were there till the end. Um, did you Were you able to interview anybody on the ground who was not an American soldier? Were you able to go to Tongo Tongo or to see any or hear from anybody that had been on the area or even any of the ISIS guys that were over there. Was was that a possibility or were you able to do that at all? Yeah, actually, ABC News made a couple of trips. I was not on them. My colleague Ian Panel went uh, immediately after the incident and interviewed one of the few Nigerians who actually um, was in the fight. Most There were 35 or so Nigerian troops and most of them fled at the first shots and were not part of the gunfight. There were about, I think, nine, and uh, there were six Nigerians who were killed, which is actually one more than is known officially, because the guy who was uh, operating a CIA cellular surveillance device, uh, a Nigerian um, operative, uh, was, I believe, shot through the head. And I don't think his death is officially counted, but he did also make the ultimate sacrifice. So um, then um, my colleagues went back a second time in 2019 and you know, but the security situation had changed dramatically. Yeah. The answer is, uh, yes, we've been in contact with several of the Nigerians who were on the ground uh, fighting. And, you know, I have a lot of people who I've talked to have to remain as confidential sources, but rest assured, I have reached out to or spoken to, you know, everybody, almost everybody you can think of. Um, some people chose not to talk, but a, but a lot did. Yeah. And importantly, a lot of people inside the military and intelligence community uh, and law enforcement did a lot to help me in my reporting because they knew the families weren't told the truth. I want to ask you about that in our last couple of minutes, um, because it seems like it's a growing concern. The issue of accountability inside the military and inside the government itself, for that matter, um, versus uh, the chain of command, 
and versus the right way of going about blowing whistles and uh, throwing red flags on things that shouldn't happen. Do you notice an uptick in people's willingness to speak um, because they are either being denied other opportunities or because they're not being denied other opportunities, they just see it as um, an easier end run to get around the system. Is there any of that? Do you do you see an uptick in that, or is that um, I don't know? From my point of view, it seems like there seems to be an uptick in that, but I, I'm not the person that would really know. So, is that justified? Is my assumption justified or not? I think it's an interesting question. I guess I would say, you know, because of the Edward Snowden case, I think there was there was a lot more um, tripwires are put into place. And I think a lot of people felt more threatened who have uh, clearances. And I should mention, I held a top secret clearance until you know about eight years ago, or actually less than that. So I appreciate uh, secrecy. I never violated my oaths. Um, it's always difficult to get people to talk uh, when they operate in that world. And we're talking the special operations world, which is you know part of the intelligence community, in effect. So people, you know, want the truth out there, but um, not, you know, a lot of people don't want to put their face on TV and or on camera and do that. And I would tell you that for every person in our film who's affected whistleblower, um, perhaps none more important than Mark Mitchell, the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Special Operations at the time, uh, there were, you know, probably 10 or 15 people, you know, I, who, for each of those people that I interviewed who, you know, were confidential sources and did not want to yeah. be on the record with their names. But I, like I said, I can tell you, Really, and it's an inspiring at times thing was how many people wanted to help get the truth out there. And well, it's it's inspiring and it's disturbing because it makes you wonder why did they why was this their only recourse, um, and why wasn't there you know more due diligence being done inside the military to cinch that up? But yeah, it is great that it got out there. It often happens. Somebody just asked me about the incident of the airstrike, the Aaron airstrike that killed the children in Kabul, and you know. Right. There is actually a parallel there because the New York Times and others exposed what really happened while the highest you know, ranking people at the Pentagon were saying something else happened that was not true and so right. or not accurate. So now you know, they, they did an investigation. Would that have happened without the, the press yeah. you know, investigating it? But it shouldn't be that way. It shouldn't right. have to take you know, an ABC News film to get people to do the right thing for the truth to come out. You know? It maybe it's that way, but here, here we are. Yeah, maybe it shouldn't, but boy, I'm glad you're out there doing that, James. This, um, I can't wait to see it. Um, everybody, I'm sure, will be tuning in. I'm sure this thing will get legs, and I hope it does. And I hope it has positive second and third order effects for military accountability and hopefully gives these families some peace of mind and some answers. James, it's a pleasure. I, I know you got to run, but I really appreciate you coming by and tell us about it. Well, thank you for this conversation and for letting me talk about uh, this extraordinary film and these amazing families who I think people will really fall in love with as they watch the film and they will miss these fallen heroes as if they were neighbors. I hope they come to know them like you would a neighbor, a good neighbor. hundred percent, hundred percent. James, thanks a million for being here. Thank you. And thank you for honoring the fallen. Of course, to everyone else, if you haven't already, Go ahead and subscribe. If you're on iTunes, a five-star review will be dynamite. You can say whatever you want to us. Constructive criticism is always welcomed. If you could attach it to a five-star review, though, that would be deeply appreciated because the metrics do matter. Show notes will be available at theweeklyhavoc.podbean.com or in my accompanying article on Havoc Journal or wherever you're listening to this podcast. Just scroll up or scroll down. You'll see the show notes where we will link 
to uh, the episode to the Hulu documentary when it is out. Also, I'll have alibis for anything I misstated or anything context or anything like that, but I think we're pretty righteous on this one. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. My thanks to our producer, Mike Neal, and of course, James Gordon Meek. We will keep trying to make order out of chaos. And we see you next time for the Weekly Havoc.